I thought we would continue on our theme of spiritual warfare. So tonight is Wednesday. It's April 23rd, 2008. And our message tonight is called a one-front fight. Got me? One-front fight. This is the third message in what's become a series. The first one was a defense program. Remember that a defense program leaves room for God to fight for you. We looked at scriptures in Romans 12, uh, Numbers 12, Daniel 3, where people like Moses, who were humble, left room for God to come to his defense. People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Know this, O king, God's able to deliver me, but if not, I still won't bow the knee to you. And we looked at how standing on godly principles and refusing to fight our own battles allows for God to step in and intervene for us. You remember in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown in a furnace. Anybody remember what Daniel 4 is? Nebuchadnezzar got thrown in a field, lost his mind for seven years. I'll take four minutes in the furnace with God as opposed to seven years in a field with an animal's mind. Hmm. How about that? Then we moved on to a message called the bombing campaign. And we looked at Daniel 10, and we learned to pray through delay. A heavenly angel was held up as he was coming to answer Daniel's request. Did you remember? Daniel kept getting called highly esteemed. We need to get a right view of ourselves. Daniel was highly esteemed and he was heard the moment he prayed, but he had to pray through delay. Then we moved into an area where we looked at Luke 18. said, we're going to wear it out. We're not going to shut up and we're not going to give up until we get what we're after. We're going to wear it out. From there, we moved into a 2 Kings 3 where the Lord said, it is an easy thing, what I'm doing. Anything that we're praying for, anything that we're fighting for, is an easy thing for God. But do you remember the Israelites did not press in? They didn't get all that God said they were supposed to get. Moab was not delivered into their hand because the enemy was more dedicated to the battle than they were. Then the last part of that message we called Thumbs Up. And we looked at Adonai Bezek, the false lightning god who is out there wanting to cut off you from your anointing, not allowing you to hear from God, not allowing you to praise. And the way we go into battle is with our praise first and our ability to hear from God second. And nothing can be denied us. Keep our thumbs up. Y'all remember any of these or am I just... Okay. Good. Good. Well, after bombing campaign, we're going to cover now a one-front fight. It looks to me... Like one front fight is the way to go. Way back in the Roman armies, they had a, a maxim, if you will, divide and conquer. That if you could get your opponent to have to fight you, fight you on two fronts, there was a greater chance for you to succeed. In fact, when you look at World War I and World War II, this is what happened to Germany. Germany had an incredible industrial machine. Kaiser Wilhelm II fought, but he had to fight the French, the British, the Belgians, and the Americans all on his western front, while he had Russia squeezing him on the eastern front. So his army had to constantly stay divided to fight a large alliance on the west and a powerful nation on his east, and he was unable to do it. And so the Allies win World War I. In World War II, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party faced the European theater, and they had all of the Western allies on their Western front. 
while they had the Soviet Union, what we would call the former Soviet Union, on their eastern front. And aside from a little invasion in the winter, which was a bad idea, most historians agree that both world wars were lost because Germany embarked on a two-front battle. We can learn from this. We can learn from this, and we can learn from the words of Jesus. Divided houses don't stand. So the question then becomes, how do we get unified in our spiritual battles? How do we get into single mind and single purpose? And with that on our mind, let's turn to 1 Peter. Is that all right with you? It's Wednesday. It's hump week. Hump day of the week. Difficult. I'm sure everybody's tired. Stephen's been laboring today, putting in kitchen appliances and... Darren's been working, administrating people. I went to see Bob's work this week. It's amazing what the man does. Organizes building projects that are a couple years in the making. I can't organize my own week. I've worked with Mandy. I've seen what she endures in a day. I know that this is difficult for you. And yet you can glean here bread that falls from heaven. And like Elijah, facing difficult times, fed by the food of angels, able to go 40 days, a severe time of testing, if you will dig in and get what you're supposed to get. There's a message for this church tonight. That's why you're sitting in these seats and not somewhere else. That's why I'm standing here preaching and not somewhere else. I could be home watching American Idol or whatever else people do that aren't in church on Wednesday nights. I don't know. It's been a long time for me. But I'm here because God has called me to you and you to me. Can you all say amen to that? Okay. So 1 Peter 1, pick up in the 8th verse. Wednesdays are short nights, so i got a lot to cover in a little bit of time, and I know you can handle it. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. <laughs> we won't cover the negative aspects of that. Have you ever met somebody that was not filled with an inexpressible joy? wonder what they don't believe in and what they uh, can't see. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. This is a little aside. Sometimes the Bible speaks of you as a finished product saved. Other times it speaks of you as being saved at some point in the future. In this verse, we see that it speaks of salvation as an ongoing process. Look to your right. Look to your left. This ought to give you mercy for the people on the left and right of you. You know why? They are still receiving the salvation of their souls. We are a work in progress. As we talk about spiritual warfare, the first thing that people tend to do is think of fighting demons, fighting angels. In fact, people tell glorious stories that they're the heroes of, where they fought imaginary creatures and were greatly victorious. The only difference between reading Beowulf and listening to some charismatic Christians talk is Beowulf may have more truth in it. <laughs> I've been in prayer meetings. I know what it is to cast out a devil. I know what it is to fight through oppression. I know what it is to have sickness that is not the devil and not be able to cast it out or fight it off. I know what it is to battle in those ways and none of them are the battle that we face on a daily basis and they are not the largest battle. The biggest battle that we will ever fight is with our own flesh. It is easy when we talk about facing down demonic powers because few ever run into them in a tangible way. 
In 15 years of ministry, I have only had a handful of times where some demonic presence manifested in a human being. And I wish I could say it was glorious. I wish I could say that there was something about it that was, well, like some people describe, fanciful. What it amounted to is I got a word of knowledge that somebody was gripped with a demonic power and when I turned towards them, they shrunk away from me. It really was not uh, anything to speak of. Prayed, spoke, it's gone. How, uh, how powerful is that? It's powerful in Jesus. There's nothing powerful about that from a human being. I can teach Judah to do it. We'll teach Judah to do it. It does not require a great man of God. It does not require a tower of spiritual strength. It requires trust in Yahweh through the man Yeshua, the Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ. And yet, the great majority of books that are written on the subject of spiritual warfare all address how to deal with the unseen principalities. I wish that was our largest problem. Our largest problem is not the unseen principalities, although they are a problem, and I've preached to you now two different times about how to deal with them. The biggest problem is what dwells right between your two ears and stretches all the way down into that organ that pumps blood all through your body in the center of your very soul. In fact, those unseen principalities would have no hold on you at all, no room, no wiggle room, not even a toehold, if we could get a hold on ourselves first. We find out that they monopolize, they manipulate our own evil desires. Like a fisherman manipulates a fish by dragging in front of its face what it might want. These powers fish in the Christian realm, looking to see what you're interested in. Think about that next time you have to change a channel quickly when someone walks in a room. Perhaps the devil's just dragging bait across your face to see what gets your attention. Hmm, how about that? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. (laughs) The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way right now. When there is no suffering, there can be no glory. We can't act as if something strange is happening to us when we suffer. All of the prophets realized that in the Christ, the anointed one, and friends, what do you call yourselves? Christians. Little anointed ones. The way to glory was the road of suffering. There is suffering, then there is glory. So when we're talking about spiritual warfare or warfare of any kind, let us not lie to each other. It's difficult. And it is not difficult because of the unseen forces that you fight in the heavenly realms. It's difficult because the toughest wrestling match you will ever have is with yourself. Have you never sat in your car contemplating some decision? You're about to get out of the car. No, back in the car. Out of the car. Back in the car. Because you didn't know what to do. Or sat staring at a phone, fighting with yourself about whether or not you were going to make the phone call. Last time you had to do something in the natural, like ask your boss for a raise. How long did you have to deliberate and how much did you fight in your own mind about doing it? We can be terribly conflicted human beings. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, I find a war raging in me. There were no demons in Paul. 
That is a wicked, ridiculous, unfruitful teaching that teaches that your body can be possessed by both the powers of light and darkness. It denies the absolute truth that is when God possesses you, He's driven out all darkness. What remains is the unsanctified you. Much easier to say the devil made me do it than it is to say, I just wanted to do it. God needs to change me. I need to change. And it's hard work. These guys looked forward to this coming of the Christ with eagerness. They were trying to understand. In verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Imagine that. But you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, all of the prophets that ever existed prophesied concerning the Christ, and it was to serve you. That's amazing. So when Isaiah gets sawed in half, and God only knows which way they ran the saw, it was to serve you. When they throw Jeremiah in a pit, and he despairs of his life, it was to serve you. When Elijah faces down the prophets of Baal, and then runs and hides after calling down fire and water from heaven, under a juniper tree, and wants to die, because the pressure is so great on him, it was for you. When's the last time somebody changed a tire for you? Or cut the grass? Or took out the trash? Or paid for a haircut or a meal? It's natural to feel slightly indebted, isn't it? In fact, I found out even as a pastor, when I do nice things for people, they immediately want to do something nice, like to even the debt, if you will. We're all so indebted to people that we won't even see this side of the kingdom. These people gave their lives to teach us something. Listen to what's coming now. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, when you see a statement in the Scripture that says, therefore, it means that what is being said is predicated on what came before it. And what came before it? Thousands of years of men and women of God pouring out their lives to serve you. We have their memoirs in this book. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. If there were a King Eric version of the Bible... It would say, let's get ready to get it on. Prepare your minds for action. Let's get ready to rumble, the guy says on TV. Prepare your minds for action. Why? Because for centuries, men and women served you by writing down their experiences so that you would have a fuller understanding. So that you who are receiving the goal of our salvation, the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, could get ready for war. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Isn't it amazing that when giving the battle call that comes from the trumpet, the shofar of God, the very first step we are told is to be self-controlled. And if this pastor is perfectly honest, I don't lose very many battles with unseen spiritual powers. In fact, I do very well with those. An outward enemy is something that is easy for me. Since I was a little boy, there is something in me that will not back up. But I lose an awful lot of battles to self-control. In fact, I find the hardest thing to do in my life is what James said, tame the tongue. 
I have opinions and situations. I have no authority. Saints, when you have no authority, you should have no opinion. And yet I find myself able to solve the world's problems safely from the armchair of my couch, never having walked in their shoes, freely able to criticize. And yet that's still not my biggest problem. Taming my own thoughts, restraining my own desires, conforming my will with God's will. This is the first one-front battle in my life. And yet, there are spiritual powers we contend with. That makes it a two-front battle. What I want to learn to do is bring my mind, will, and emotions under control by my spirit so that I am only fighting with the enemy of God and not suffering from friendly fire within me. You understand? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Grace to be given you. What is grace, saints? Is it not unmerited favor? One of the ways that we learn to be self-controlled is realize that God is giving us favor where we don't deserve it. And when you're given favor where you don't deserve it and you realize that and you think about it, it's more difficult to sin against that person, isn't it? And when you forget and you sin anyway, what is grace but unmerited favor? Unmerited favor is the thing that balances this all for us. A prophecy came forth today. I understood exactly what he meant, though some theologians would have a problem with it. God doesn't expect perfection, the prophecy said. Yet he tells you to be holy for he's holy. The prophecy went on to say, aim for perfection. So where is the balance? How do you aim for perfection but know that you can't hit it? You know that there is a great equalizer in the Word called grace. But if you want lots of it for you, the Bible teaches you must have lots of it for other people. Because the same measure that you apply grace to Jacob, the same measure of grace that you apply to Bob, God applies to you. So we are to be walking, living grace dispensers, ought we not? Grace is not completely ignoring sin. That's greasy grace. Grace is not looking the other way and acting as if God doesn't have a standard. Grace is when you have done all you can do to stand and yet fall, God will give you favor where you don't deserve it. Hmm. Listen, he goes on to say, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had. Isn't he gracious to us? The evil desires you had. Because none of you have had an evil desire this week, huh? No. None of us do. We're all so holy that we don't even age. Look around. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. We are told to be like God. So what is God like? God takes up the fight of those who are oppressed. God cares about those who are defenseless. God is also merciful to anyone who knows they need His help and extremely harsh to those who refuse it. How about that? Hmm. Turn with me then to Psalm 4.4. Get into the meat of the issue because I'm going to run out of time before I get off my first thought. One of the things that's neat about having your own church is you can preach about whatever you want to, though. So if I don't finish today, there's always Sunday and Wednesday. Psalm 4. 
You may recognize this quote from Ephesians as well. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul, when writing the book of Ephesians, quoted the Psalms. Apparently the Old Testament wasn't old to him. In Ephesians 4, the fourth verse, In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Isn't it great that the Bible does not say, do not be angry? But it doesn't. How many times have you thought that an emotion you had was bad? God gave us the emotions that we have. But in our emotions, we are not allowed to sin. I remember when I was a young man. I'm still a young man, but much younger man. Gabe's laughing at me back there. It's funny. What a subjective term, young. I noticed before I was married the shape of different people who walked around. That hasn't stopped. I still notice how people are shaped. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. What you do with that can either profit life in you or profit in you death. My wife became mildly amused. There's a newscaster on television that I slipped and told her I thought was cute. Now I can't even watch the news without scrutiny. I would have to be dead not to notice these things, and it is not wrong. There are things that make God angry. So anger is not sin. And yet the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. It seems that we're a complex bag. We have lots of clubs in our bag, so to speak. We're able to hit the ball short, able to hit it long. We're able to do all kinds of things in between, and none of it is wrong. But you still need the right club for the right shot. You can be angry, but you're not allowed to sin. You know what else? You can be sad. Some things make God sad. Genesis 6 says his heart's filled with pain, and he was grieved. But we're not allowed to sin in our sadness. So then, what does it mean to be alert and to be self-controlled? If you're allowed to have all of these emotions, what does it mean then? How do we handle it? Turn with me to Psalm 25. I love David. One of the things that is so beautiful about the Psalms is they are full of humanity. When you read about David... You could be reading about you. Sometimes he speaks of God's love and compassion and mercy. And sometimes he says, crush their hairy crowns, God. Break the teeth out of their mouths. Sounds to me like he was upset. Some things should make you upset. And some things should make you sad. But you are not allowed to miss God's mark in any of your emotions. In Psalm 25, it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's your mind, your will, and your emotions. How is it then that we're allowed to have these emotions but not sin? We need to constantly bring our own emotions, our mind, will, and emotions before our God and say, Conform it to your will, Lord. And if any of you think that hiding in your house is being depressed is God's will for your life, all we've got to do is read one verse in Thessalonians and you'll find out it's not. One verse debunks that theory. If any of you think that walking around being angry at everyone all of the time is God's will for your life, all we need to do is read a single verse in Matthew 
and it will debunk that theory. This is not a sermon that says, well, my emotions are God-given, so they're all justified. All of your emotions, you're accountable to God for how you use them. It's not wrong to feel things. That lets you know you're alive. What you do with that stimulus, that determines whether you continue to live or die. See, there is a battle that goes on within us. And what makes us different than the animal kingdom is that the Almighty God has invested in us a free will to choose. I am not a slave, though the devil would like to make me a slave. In fact, you can say that I once was a slave, but a slave no more am I. I refuse to be enslaved by my mind, will, or emotions. To some people, that sounds ridiculous. Some people think, well, my mind, will, and emotions are what's in charge. Friends, if you make all of your decisions in the soulless realm, you will miss God nearly 100% of the time. Because what looks like it's good food what seems desirable for gaining wisdom, what seems like a relatively good choice can bring you death. Our lives now must be about mastering ourselves. And then we are willing, we are able, we are unified to begin to fight with the enemy. He goes on to say, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. I love this psalm. In fact, I'm going to have to read you a little bit more of it. Listen to how he swings back and forth as he talks. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Well, then why is he asking not to be put to shame? Because there is a battle that rages within David. And he is fighting just like you are fighting. At times he feels as if he's going to fail. And at other times he's encouraged that God will not let him fail. So he begins to speak to his soul. His soul feels discouraged and he begins to speak to it. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, the great mercy and love, for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth in my rebellious ways. <laughs> Apparently, David has the prerogative to tell God what he wants him to remember and not remember. What do you want anybody to remember about you? The good. What do you want him to forget? All of your mistakes. David was no different than you. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. Who in here has been instructed by God? Sinner. Ah. Center. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need any instruction from God and you wouldn't get any. But the fact that you're here shows that you still have problems just like me. You're not completely self-controlled. You're not yet completely submitted to the Spirit of God. Well, there's good news. God will instruct you in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. Uh-oh, there's demands. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. He goes on to say wonderful things, but one of the things that David did well was he lifted up his mind, will, and emotions to God. 
you hear him saying things like, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And another time saying, Whoa, you made me the king of the world. And they all come and cringe before me. David experienced the heights of human existence and the depths. But he gave what he was to God and let God guide him in it. Don't we see Jesus leap for joy and at other times filled with grief and compassion? He experienced humanity in the same way that we do and none of it is wrong. Unless you dwell in an area God doesn't want you to or sin in that emotion. But how many times have you missed God's perfect will for your life because you didn't feel like something? I just don't feel like praising today. I don't feel like reading today. I know I feel that strange feeling like I should go talk to them, but what I really feel is fear, and I'm going to yield to that. None of the ways that God made you are in themselves bad. But when we measure our actions against God's Word and choose not to do what it says, friends, that's the definition of sin. Not doing the good that we know we should do. Turn with me to Isaiah 57. One of the things that I want to teach you in this one front battle. Man, time is flying by. One of the things that I want to teach you in this one front battle is that in preparing ourselves for action, something has to be done. Look at Isaiah 57, starting in verse 14. And it will be said, Build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and the lofty one says, He who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There are obstacles that the enemy has put in our way and that we yield to. Fear in itself is not wrong. You should be scared if there is a lion that wants to eat you. And it should cause adrenaline to be released in your body and you should run faster than you would run if you were lethargic and sleepy. And God designed you that way. But when fear enters us and opposes our trust in God, for instance, God says, I want you to walk past that lion. Don't even act like he exists. Just walk right by him. And we can't do it because of that emotion, then we are not self-controlled, alert, or preparing for action. What we are is controlled by base natural instincts, and that, friends, is animal-like. In our one-front battle, we need to eliminate the enemy that is within. How do you do it? Well, we need to begin to remove the obstacles. Did you hear the very first words of this? Build up, build up. Another way to say that in a New Testament Greek translation would be edify. Now, what do you know that edifies a Christian? Well, the Word of God edifies you. What else do you know edifies a Christian? Fellowship edifies you. What else do you know edifies a Christian? Praying in the Spirit and with all kinds of requests. This edifies you. So how do you get stronger, saints? How do you work out? How do you first defeat the enemy within so that you can begin to face the enemy without? Build up and remove the obstacles. 
The Word of God will show you the obstacles. You don't need any man to do it. You know what demons you fight with. And isn't that a funny expression? They're not really demons, are they? What are they? Our own evil desires. But doesn't it sound better to call sin weakness and our own evil desires demons? It puts it somewhere else, doesn't it? How about that? Turn with me to Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, starting in the 10th verse. No, that is not right. Why don't we skip that one and go to Malachi? Yeah, yes. In Malachi, the third chapter. By the way, does anybody know what the Word of God is useful for? The Apostle Paul tells somebody, he says, the Word of God is useful for, or all Scripture is useful for? Boy, a myriad of answers. Correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. How about that? Listen to this verse. It's Malachi 3.1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who does that speak of? Come on, you can talk to me. Who is that? John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. What kind of message did John the Baptist have? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. If we're going to remove obstacles in our life, what kind of thing do you expect? Discipline from God, and that makes you His disciples. Have you ever fallen into the trap of saying, I don't want to get around them. They never tell me anything good. All I ever hear is what I do wrong. When you go to church, do you feel convicted one week and not want to come back the next? Like going to the doctor and because he said a bone, you'll never see him again. You'd rather walk around with a broken bone. One of the ways that we begin to become self-controlled is when other people point out things that need to be removed so that we can be built up. If they're pointing out things that don't need to be removed and are not for the purpose of building up but tearing down, they're not from God. How do you know the difference? One makes you want to go hang yourself and the other makes you want to become a better person. That's what Paul told the Corinthian church in the second letter to him in the seventh chapter. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow brings condemnation and death. Move to James 3. I think James will drive us the rest of the way home. Y'all still with me? A one-front fight. Remember that the enemy wants to divide your interest. He wants you to lack confidence. He wants you to be consumed with all of your inadequacies so that when you face Him, you're unable to fight with just Him. You ever walked into a prayer meeting and felt as if God wanted you to do something but you were plagued by what you had already done? We don't need to name any of it. i got a feeling some of you know what I mean, though. I know exactly what that's like. In fact, I've learned that these preemptive strikes are just that, preemptive strikes. The number of times in my Christian walk, especially now that I've become uh, a guide for some, the number of times that I've had a horrible, demonic fight during the day, but also fight with my own desires, 
followed by a phone call from one of you in trouble is amazing. Now Matthew and I have gotten to the point where I've said, today I feel as if I could go to hell. Who is in trouble? That way when I'm sitting in front of you and you're saying, this has happened, this happened, that happened, I don't know what to do, what should I do? All I can hear in my mind is a battle that is going on that says, if they knew what you had already done, they wouldn't even ask you that. You're not qualified to tell them. Who are you? You're not a man of God. You sin. And now all of a sudden I am in a battle on two fronts. One with the devil and one with me. You know how much better it is to walk into that same meeting knowing that you have been in the presence of God? Knowing that your sin has been accounted for? You know how much better it is to walk into that a master of your own body? having compared all of your thoughts to the Word of God and casting them down, walking in His Spirit. But I want to tell you something, saints. No matter however you walk into that room, because of your calling and what God desires to do in you, His grace is sufficient and you stand and do what He's called you to do. Otherwise, I could only be your pastor for about an hour each week. Hmm. But I know all of you do better than that. Y'all in James 3? You know what else really helps? A completely glass house. In the world, they say people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Let me live in a glass house. You throw all the stones you want at me. I'm going to show you every weakness, every inadequacy, and we're going to grow and get better together. That way you won't be surprised if one day you see me on the line at Wendy's and I let you down in some way. Maybe you didn't know pastors could eat two triple cheeseburgers in a single day. Because it can be done, I tell you. Are you in James 3? I cannot believe this. The time has flown by. Who is wise? This is the 13th verse. An understanding among you. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Envy and selfish ambition is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Well, what is selfish ambition? Is that just when you want people to think you're great? Or is it any time that your goal is to put yourself above the Word's desires? Hmm. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Did you know that when the works of the flesh are listed in Galatians, that disorder is right next to witchcraft? How about that? And what is disorder? Disorder is a lack of harmony. When we don't walk around in harmony with each other and in harmony with God because of our own Selfish voices inside of us. And sometimes selfishness manifests in funny ways. Sometimes your opinion of yourself is so strong that you won't believe what the Word says about you, even if others tell you. See, selfish ambition is not always the arrogant. Selfish ambition is also those who refuse to see themselves as the mighty warriors God calls them as. See, in some ways it's selfish when God says, do it, and you say, I can't because you hold your opinion higher than you hold God's. That's selfish ambition. It's just 
what the world would think of as a lack of ambition. But it is ambition. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. Whoa! Considerate. Oh my goodness. Submissive. That's almost a dirty word now, isn't it? Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. It sounds like some of the things that we need to get rid of in our lives are bitterness and any exaltation of self. When you think of exaltation of self, it would be so easy to think of somebody like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Somebody who thinks that they're great in an outward way. And yet, self-exaltation is any time that you cause your thoughts, your desires, to outweigh what the Word actually says. And I have found out something. People that are cloaked in a false humility. People that are full of a lack of achievement because they're plagued with self-doubt are full of selfish ambition and they don't know it. Because the church has taught them it's meekness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Battle on two fronts. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or don't you think the Scriptures, or do you think the Scripture says without reason that He caused to live in us, the Spirit He caused to live in us, envies intensely, but He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 7 1 Peter 5, 9. They both contain a formula here. And this formula says, submit yourselves to God. Then it goes on to say, resist the devil. And what we begin to find out when you look at these two things, by the way, 1 Peter says it a little differently. It says, be self-controlled. Then goes on to tell you how to resist the devil. What we find out is that when we settle the battle within us, the battle with the enemy is already won. He has nothing to work with. When you are wholly devoted to God in your mind, will, and emotions, whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants it, the battle with the en other enemy is a foregone conclusion because God has already said, resist him and he will flee from you. That's not much of a fight, is it? How about that? But when the battle is undecided on one front, it only encourages the enemy on the other front. America entered into a two-front battle during World War II as well. We fought the Japanese and the Germans. And we fought them in drastically different places. And how was it that we won? Completely unified in heart and action. See, it is possible to win. It is possible to win. You just need to settle the battle inside so that you can win the battle outside. And saints, let us not fall into the trap of this demonology that is floating around. When we fail, 99% of the time it's not because something manifested and overpowered you. It's because you were dragged away by your own selfish desire just like your pastor. But you draw a line in the sand. 
You win that battle and all the rest fall. You understand? Amen. I have much, much more to say to you on the subject, but I am completely out of time. So suffice it to say that Matthew 12:25, it says a divided house can't stand. I refuse to be divided. My whole heart, my whole life will be given to Jesus in every small detail, and then I have no fear of the enemy. And if another pastor calls you and asks you to cast out a demon, you know what that means? The battle inside him is not won yet. Because if it was, he'd have no fear of the enemy. I guess that's where I'm going to have to end this tonight. I hate that. There is no 1995 and rest of the tape. Uh, you can go ahead and stand to your feet and I'll tell you this last little bit. If there's anything under the rocks in your life, if there's any little area that you know God is dealing with you about, but you have not yet submitted it, you need to understand that is fuel for the enemy. That is encouragement for the enemy, and it becomes his ammunition, his tool. In fact, it's what Paul calls a toehold or a foothold. In fact, what happens is he can use that to begin to work his way up the rest of your body and strangle you. But when it is settled within you, it is settled outside of you already. All of our battles are won and lost in our own thoughts. They really are. So the good news about that is you can spend a few minutes with God. You can spend a few minutes with a friend, somebody you can be accountable to. You can speak openly. You can settle this within you so that you never lose an encounter with the enemy. Friends, I'm not worried about the devil, not even a little bit. I'm certainly not worried about any of his minions, not even a little bit. Not even the puppets that work for him in this realm am I worried about. I am worried about my own potential to stray from God. But if I will handle that one, all of the others fall like dominoes. That's not just what the Word says. I've personally experienced it all of my life. You can have zero knowledge and stomp all over the devil's head. You just have to be completely devoted to God. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but have your heart divided and he will stomp all over your head, drag you through the streets, and embarrass you publicly. Let's pray. Holy, holy God, Lord, with all of my 